Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 22nd, 2010. Oh, yeah. It's great to be back into the routine. Finally catch up. Training my uh, part-time help on updating the podcast. It's all great, man. I feel almost human. Yeah, don't jump to any conclusions. It's almost human. Not, not, Not fully human, but, you know. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy, bizarre, weird, um, just fanciful flights of dreamage. Uh, that's not really a word, but... Uh, You get what I'm saying, and we cover it all here at Fighting for the Faith for a couple of good reasons. One, it's important for you to be exposed to it, and two, it's important for you to be exposed to the biblical counterpoint to it so that you can know that it's wrong. Listen, anybody can make up anything they want about God. I mean, you could name it. I mean, that's what really is going on here is you got a bunch of people just making stuff up and then claiming that God is the one who told them that that's the way they are. And you sit there and go... Really? God God, God uh, told you that? Really? Hey, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Me and God, we uh, he talks to me all the time. He does? <laughs> um, what, does he say? what does his voice sound like? And uh, with an emergent, I mean, the voice of God sounds like a woman. So that's another show topic. <laughs> but the idea here is this. Is that we're to te- I mean, we gotta test these things. And somebody who is teaching in the Christian church things that are contrary to what God has revealed about Himself, or uh, doesn't God hasn't revealed any of that stuff about Himself in the Scripture? Well, those people are not telling you the truth. And the thing is, is that, like I said in a previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, twisting God's word is not a victimless a victimless crime. Lying about God is not a victimless crime, and it is a crime. How do I know it's a crime? God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And what that really is referring to is not somebody who does the flippant OMG uh, on, on, you know, while tweeting or, or, you know, on their iPhone or their BlackBerry or their smartphone, you know, they're texting. Yeah, that's, I mean... Technically, that falls into the realm of 
blaspheming or using God's name in vain, but that's like the on the list of bad uh, ways in which you actually in, you know commit that sin of taking God's name in vain. T- texting OMG on Twitter is like at the bottom of the list as far as importance. And see, the thing is, at the top of the list, at the very, very tip-top pinnacle, you know, I mean, I mean, this is up there with like adultery. Is teaching falsely about God, saying things that ought not to be said because you have no authority to say such things. Lying about God, speaking falsely about him, believing falsely. That's what that's what that commandment is really all about. And so uh, you know, the, the reason why we I do this is because it matters. It matters because we've got great news and it's and it's authoritative. It's sure it's something that you can you can bet all the blue chips on. And that is is that. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, come to earth to die on the cross for your sins. Yeah, you. You might be thinking, you know, listen, uh, you know, you don't, you don't understand what I've done. No, no, really, actually, I do understand what you've done. And that being the case, I've got great news. Christ died for your sins. We've, and so we've, here we've got the Bible. We've got words inspired by the Holy Spirit, nouns and verbs and pronouns and adverbs and subordinate clauses, and, and it, it's, it's there. And God has revealed amazing stuff about himself. And the, the, the best part is, is that what God has revealed is infinitely more interesting than all the fanciful stories that the Todd Bentleys and the Patricia Kings and the Emergence and now the seeker-driven guys and, and as well as like the Word Faith guys. Uh, it's it, What God has actually revealed about himself is far more fascinating, far more encouraging, far more comforting, far more amazing than, uh, than these flights of fancy uh, by these false teachers out there. And unfortunately, the false teachers, uh, well, they've got book deals with Zondervan. They have, uh, they have uh, uh, conferences that they put on that are well attended by other pastors. Other pastors shouldn't be attending these conferences. They should instead be calling these false teachers to repentance. But, you know, the state that we live in, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the false teachers have become, quote, pastors to other pastors. As a result of it, we got some work that we have to do. And so, well, you know, that's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. And so with that in mind, uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I got a news story from uh, the USA Today blog. Uh, this is fun. Uh, the USA Today religion blog, Faith and Reason or Faith and Something blog. Uh, it's uh, The headline is, Few Believe Glenn Beck Can Be a Religious Leader. <laughs> yes, thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> somewhat encouraging news yeah after you know yeah after that debacle of his uh, religious event in august and um, and by the way uh, the second thing we're going to do today is i'm going to play to you a, a 10 minute segment from uh, something that walter martin put out and uh, this uh, and uh, this was uh, a link to this was posted on my facebook wall and i just had to share it with you because these are timely words that apply to us today even though uh, this uh, when this was recorded walter martin was uh, referring to the uh, prosperity heresy and uh, the ptl scandal 
That being the case, nothing's changed except for the names. This, the same urgency with which uh, Walter Martin was saying that it's not unloving to confront error. That, that, that's today. These are words that we need to hear today. And Jay, who is a listener, uh, is the one who posted this on my Facebook wall. I'm going to pass this along to you today. And then I'm going to do something a little bit different. Rather than uh, teach the Bible during... Uh, my sermon review. If you listen to the sermon reviews, you've noticed that lately I've uh, gotten into the habit of actually teaching large segments of scripture um, w- during the sermon reviews. Because, like I said at the at the top of the program, what the Bible really teaches is far more interesting than uh, what these uh, the, those people who are twisting God's word uh, are saying. And so, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to. I'm going to do probably about 30 minutes of uh, Bible reading slash teaching, and uh, I'm going to entitle the segment Taking Joseph Away from the Purpose-Driven Dreamers. Yeah, the name of this the segment is, called, is, is entitled Taking Joseph Away from the Purpose-Driven Dreamers. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time in the story of Joseph. Since those who keep talking about dr- uh, the importance of dreaming and, and all that kind of stuff keep referring back to Joseph, we're going to take Joseph away from them. And then in our sermon review today, uh, we're going to uh, listen to a bad purpose-driven sermon preached by the wife of Eddie Jones of Christian Life Center in Rolla, Missouri, and uh, she's doing a um, a sermon on the movie August Rush. Now, August Rush, what was that, 2007? I think that's a 2007 film. Yeah, I, I know I'm getting old and uh, creeping decrepitude has crept upon me, but I do, you know, I get, well, maybe I'll have to look. But uh, I think that was like, what, 2007, 2008, <clears throat> I, when the movie August Rush came out. And if you haven't seen it, it's a pretty good movie, actually. But uh, she's going to be doing a, 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 a sermon on August Rush, and, it, and again, it deals with this, this – what I think is what we're seeing happen here is a growing uh, heresy, a, a purpose-driven heresy. And, uh, and so I'll be – this sermon kind of fits into the genre of some of the stuff we've been listening to lately, uh, especially yesterday's Dream Killer sermon. Yeah, so Mike, the big question now. So here's the big question: um, If you are guilty of killing someone's dream, is are you guilty of dreamicide? Yeah, I, I mean, makes you wonder if the FBI should open up, you know, a, a new division, you know, the dreamicide division. I mean, and then we can have like different degrees of of dreamicide. You can have like first degree dreamicide and second degree dream aside and you know and then uh, a dream slaughter would be like you know third degree you know like you didn't intend but you accidentally killed somebody's dream <sighs> you just can't you know here's the funny thing you can't make fun of this stuff because as soon as you do well then somebody comes up with that um idea so it's just a matter of time before one of these purpose driven pastors uh starts talking about dream aside just watch it's coming i'll find it it'll you know in fact i I wouldn't be surprised if I typed into my Google browser, dream aside, if something actually came up linked to a purpose-driven church. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, with that, let's uh, dive into the program proper and uh, do a little bit of news before we get to the other stuff here. From the USA Today... um, Faith and uh, Reason uh, blog 
Headline reads, few believe that Glenn Beck can be a religious leader. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this was uh, – who, who's the gal who writes this blog? I don't know her name. Hang, hang on a second. I'm seeing if I can find the byline here. Uh, uh, Brent Jones, that's the person who wrote this. Uh, Brent Jones writes for the USA Today Faith and Reason blog. Glenn Beck, you're no Pat Robertson. <laughs> I just had to read that sentence just because. <sighs> and Pat Robertson, you're no Martin Luther. So there, you know. <laughs> Glenn Beck, you're no Pat Robertson. Yeah, I don't have a particular love for Pat Robertson either. So I had to fix this. So it, really the sentence should read, uh, Glenn Beck, you're no Pat Robertson. And Pat Robertson, you're no Martin Luther. So that's the better way of saying it. Anyway, that's what it appears from a new survey by the Public Religion Research Institute in partnership with the Religion News Service. Uh, the Fox talk show host held a Divine Destiny rally the night before his National Mall gathering in Washington, and he said repeatedly that he's listening for God's guidance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Glenn Beck says he's listening for God's guidance in his efforts to reclaim America for God and history. But fewer than one in five, that's 70% of Americans say that Glenn Beck can lead a religious movement. According to a story by Nicole Nur... Uh, uh, boy, I'm going to mess up this name. Uh, uh, by Nicole N. <laughs> I just can't pronounce this woman's last name. Nerulius, Nicole Nerulius. Uh, that's my best guess. So, a story by Nicole Nerulius, otherwise known as Nicole N, uh, at the uh, Religion News Service. The survey found nearly one in three have favorable or unfavorable view of views of Glenn Beck. Twenty-eight percent uh, favorable, twenty-seven percent unfavorable, respectively. But about four in ten say they have no opinion at all regarding Glenn Beck. And even folks with the most favorable views of Beck, those are Republicans, fifty-five uh, percent, and evangelicals, forty-eight percent. Only forty-five percent said that he could lead a religious movement. Still, that's a lot. Uh, I mean, seriously. I mean, if forty-five uh, percent of Republican evangelicals—that's almost half. Say that he could lead a religious movement, um, says Robert Jones, CEO of uh, Public Religion Research. That's a lot, though. Um, for, uh, only, yeah, see, when you put the word only in front of 45%, it makes it sound smaller. But um, take the word only out and you, you, you lose the, um, the interpretive value of that uh, of what's going on here. I mean, I mean, listen to this. According to the Religious News Service, those who view Glenn Beck favorably, uh, you know, that 55% uh, uh, they're evangelicals and um, Republicans, um, 45% of them say that he can lead, he can lead a religious movement. <sighs> Man. That's that's almost half of evangelicals. See, I was getting all excited about this uh, Faith and Reason blog post. You know, the uh, few believe that Glenn Beck can be a religious leader. But when you start slicing up the uh, survey results, you find that almost half of evangelicals say that Glenn Beck can, read a, uh, can lead a religious movement. Half of evangelicals, half of evangelicals say that he can lead a religious movement. 
No, he can't. He's a Mormon. <laughs> he doesn't believe in the same Jesus we believe in. His Jesus doesn't exist. His Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, born to uh, Father Elohim and one of his many um, uh, wives on planet Kolob. <sighs> Anyway, I, I was getting I was getting excited about this, but then uh, when you start reading the fine print, yeah, when you put the word only in front of forty five percent, that's um, yeah, that's almost half. I mean, flip a coin, half of the half of half of the half of evangelicals. Uh, all right, I, I'm done beating that dead horse. <laughs> Oh man. Okay, so uh Facebook uh Facebook friend uh, and listener to the program uh by the name of Jay. Uh, I think his last name is Ott, O T T. Jay has uh, posted on his uh, YouTube channel a classic Walter Martin uh soundbite that is worth passing along to you. And I'm dubbing this uh, uh Walter Martin soundbite. It's not unloving to confront error. Talk about timely. This is a message we need to hear today, and not only that, it, yeah, it, th- this is this is exactly the kind of thinking. This is exactly the same spirit uh, that uh, that we do fighting for the faith in. So, uh, without any further ado, here is um, Walter Martin, and I, I don't know what year this was recorded, but it was recorded about the same time as the uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker PTL scandal. And uh, worth passing along. I, I might chime in a little bit here, you know, here and there to, you know, to emphasize and underline and, and highlight some of what Walter Martin is saying in this fantastic soundbite. But here's uh, Walter Martin. Tonight we're dealing with an extremely complex subject. We're dealing with the positive confession and the health and welfare groups, some of which have now crossed over the line from merely Christian forms or expressions of theology into the area of the kingdom of the cults. Ten years ago, when I was a professor at Melody Land School of Theology, I did a tape called The Errors of Positive Confession. I was vilified rather openly by a large number of charismatics uh, on the ground that I was being divisive and unloving because I was being critical of brothers. Got a pause right there. Uh, you should read the email that I get. That is almost verbatim. The when uh, when the critical emails come in, and boy, they come in on a daily basis. That is almost verbatim what people say about me. You're you're vilifying brothers. You shouldn't be doing what you're doing. They're crit. You're uh uh-huh, yeah. They're twisting God's word. The fact is that you can be a brother, and you can be in very serious doctrinal error. And if you have a large ministry and a lot of people watch you on television or see you on radio. Or read your books published by Zondervan or attend your, uh, your church pastoral leadership conferences. And if you are not responsive to your peers, it is possible for you to lead literally millions of people into false doctrines. Not meaning to do so, but being in ignorance yourself. We are dealing today with doctrines which have progressed from simply ignorance to outright heresy and finally to blasphemy 
And if the Christian church doesn't address... Did you catch that uh, progression from ignorance to Bible twisting to heresy to blasphemy? I, I That may not be the exact uh, order, but you get what I'm saying there. That's what I think we're seeing happen in the purpose-driven movement. A bunch of ignorant statements being st- uh, stated that is now congealed into a flat-out heresy. And, you know, God has a big dream for your life. It's a, Really, he does? Serious? Yeah, I, I don't see that as a big doctrinal category. I, I'm called to love and serve my neighbor. Big dream? I... Who cares? I mean, God can keep his dreams and just tell me what I need to do on a daily basis. But Because the Bible doesn't say that I'm to be guided by some God-given dream or whatever. Anyway, I, I'm off on a tangent. Let's continue. ...doesn't address these subjects. If Christian leaders, Bible conferences like this, pastors and teachers, do not stand up and say, Enough! This is what the Scripture says, and you are answerable to Scripture then we are going to have false doctrine running rampant all over the Christian world, and nobody is going to be able to police it or stop it. (laughs) Well, that sounds just like today. (sighs) We have recently seen in the PTL scandal that one word has emerged consistently. The word is accountability. In the case of fiscal accountability, we already know there have been gross abuses. But what about accountability... In the area of theology. Who is Oral Roberts accountable to? Sir? Yeah, who is Rick Warren accountable to? Why isn't it? How about Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick? Who are those guys doctrinally accountable to? I can tell you who I'm accountable to. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. My pastor. Boy, if I, oh man. If I start wandering off the uh, biblical reservation... Oh man! Oh boy, am I in trouble? Boy, I, I'm. And yeah, it's serious. If I start wandering biblically, not only will those guys haul me before them and want an, uh, an explanation as to what it is that I'm teaching, there is a good chance they'll throw me out of the church and bar me from communion. Yeah, that it's it's that serious. But my question is, wh- who in the who in the Southern Baptist Convention is holding Rick Warren accountable for the Bible twisting that he's been engaging in in his books? And in his sermons, where where is what's the what's the point of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention if the Southern Baptist Convention will not hold its pastors accountable for their teaching? Just a question. I mean, this kind of state of affairs right now. Certainly not the United Methodist Church, because they will ordain you if you deny the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, and the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the Bible as the Word of God. Who can he answer to? If nobody believes. Who does Kenneth Copeland answer to? Who does Kenneth Hagin answer to? Who does Frederick Price answer to? Who does Charles Capps answer to? Who do the televangelists answer to theologically? Who does Bill Hybels uh, answer to? Well, Jimmy, how about Rob Bell? Swaggart answers to the Assemblies of God, and they already did their work with Jim Baker. So we know that they do have accountability. Well, they did at the time uh, because the Assemblies of God now, we have Mark Batterson. Mark Batterson is an AOG guy, and he's got a female pastrix teaching at his church, and he's teaching people to chase wild geese. 
Ja, ja. James Robeson has to answer to the Southern Baptist Convention, as do I, as does Billy Graham. And we have four levels of accountability. If I teach heretical doctrine, my local pastor comes after me. If I won't listen to him, my local association comes after me. If I won't listen to them, the state convention will haul me in. And if I won't listen to them, they'll try me in the national level. So they get me four ways. That's accountability. Denominations normally have accountability. But the people who are out there, by and large, in the so-called positive confession movement and the, quote, faith teaching movement, close quote, are accountable to nobody. They don't account on theology. They don't account on ethics. They don't account on morality. Notice, uh, yeah, it's same thing with the seeker-driven uh, leaders. There's no accountability for Ed Young, Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, Rick Warren, and the list goes on and on and on. No, no doctrinal accountability whatsoever. They don't account to anyone or anything except their own constituency, and only if their own constituency won't send the money. That's the mark of ultimate accountability. If you don't write the check. You may not listen to the Holy Spirit, and you may not listen to Scripture, but believe me, if people stop sending their money in, you will start to listen. Otherwise, you won't be on television or radio, and they know that much. So the gospel of the checkbook has now replaced the biblical gospel of authority in the church. Now, so long as nobody insists upon accountability, then it will go on. But the church has awakened. And people are demanding accountability. And that is as it should be. No minister should be afraid to account for his theology privately or publicly. And if he has questions about it and he won't answer them, then we have every right to suspect him. That is not... Yeah, that's right. If they will not answer your theological questions or your biblical questions, uh, you should suspect them. By the way, you want to know what I believe? I subscribe unequivocally to the Book of Concord. That's the Confessions of the Lutheran Church. You want to know what I believe, teach, and confess on any subject, whether it's the Lord's Supper, baptism, regeneration, original sin, what are the marks of the church, the, I mean, all of that. You want to know what I believe? Pick up a copy of the reader's edition of the Book of Concord then you'll know what I believe, teach, and confess. You're sitting there going, uh, what about the Bible? Well, that tells you how I understand the Bible. Okay, I'm not saying that the Book of Concord is authoritative. The Scriptures are authoritative, and the Book of Concord lays out what I believe is the correct way to read the Scriptures. So, yeah, you, you, you want to, if, you're, if, you're, if you're uncertain about what I believe on a, on a subject, get yourself a copy of the Book of Concord. And, and if you still have questions about something, email me. I'll answer them. Not heresy hunting. That is not divisive. That is not unloving. That is thoroughly biblical. Often, when I cite people's names publicly, they say, "But why can't you just name the thing? Why do you have to name the person?" Because in Scripture, Paul gave us our example. 
When he confronted evil in the church, he said, Hymenaeus and Philetus have erred concerning the truth. They are teaching that the resurrection has passed and they are overturning the faith of some. He named them. He named Hymenaeus and Alexander. He said, Alexander, the coppersmith has done me much harm. May the Lord reward him according to his works. Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He named them and confronted them. So consistently, all through church history, it has been necessary to confront evil. It doesn't make you popular. A lot of people don't love you. But the people that will end up loving you are the people that are delivered because of the confrontation. And that's been the task of the church. If Luther had not confronted a corrupt Roman Catholic theology, you would not be sitting here today as Protestants. And if Athanasius had not confronted a corrupt government under Constantine and stood against the Arian heresy, which is the theology of Jehovah's Witnesses in the fourth century, the Christian church would have been split right down the middle on the deity of Jesus Christ. And his relationship to the Father. But one man took on the whole church. And because he was right, we have the Athanasian Creed today, affirming the biblical doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. It's been necessary all through history to confront. So I want to lay an important foundation. And that foundation is it is not unloving to tell the truth. Hear, hear, amen. Right. It is not unloving to tell the truth it is not unloving to confront people regarding their bible twisting their false doctrine their false dreams their false visions their speculative theology and all of that it is not unloving it is the epitome of love to confront people who are teaching falsely why because what's at stake is their very own soul and the souls of those who listen and buy in to their false doctrine Amen. It is not divisive to point out error. It is not an option to stand against evil. It is a divine command. And if we don't do it, we become accessories after the fact to their crimes. That's what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 33 and 34. When God speaking through the prophet said, If you do not warn the wicked man of his wicked way, and he dies in his sins... I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you warn him and he won't listen, then you are free from responsibility. So there is a solid biblical basis for this. It is not negative. It is the epitome of a positive confession to tell the truth when you confront false doctrine. Now, in order for us to deal with this very, very widespread subject, we must understand what it is we're talking about and get a biblical orientation to judge it. Everybody on television, everybody in the pulpit, everybody who claims to be an evangelist or a minister, and I know wherever I speak, I'm a professor of biblical studies. I teach ministers how to be ministers, and I have for 35 years. When I tell you this, it's the truth. You can check it out for yourself. Every minister is accountable to the vows he takes. And every minister is accountable to the church that he serves but above all of those things, he is accountable to Scripture, which judges everything that he does and says. 
Now, once you lose accountability to Scripture, you have lost viable authority. And once you've lost that, you can pay your nickel and take your choice as to what your theology will be. Every one of our major seminaries in the United States that's gone down the tubes in the last 75 to 100 years and has become liberal went down there because they denied the authority of Scripture. They began with Scripture, they moved to the doctrine of God, the person of Christ, salvation, and by the time they got finished, they were down the tubes. There isn't one of them that doesn't qualify in this description. Right. And by the way, there's more than one way to deny the authority of Scripture. And one way to deny the authority of Scripture is to give lip service to the idea that the Bible is authoritative and then stick something else alongside of it or parallel to it that is on par with Scripture and is also authoritative from from God. And you're sitting there going, okay, give me an example. I'll give you two. One is like the Book of Mormon. Oh, yeah, well, the Mormons say, oh, the Bible's the Word of God, and so is the Book of Mormon. Well, what is the Book of Mormon? Apparently, uh, another set of revelations that uh, were given supposedly to the prophet Joseph Smith. But let's get a little more practical. Those people, including Patricia King, Todd Bentley, and Rick Warren, and others who claim that they're getting direct revelation from God, those direct revelations from God are put on par with God's Word. Yep. And what happens is those direct revelations are attacking the authority of God's Word. God's Word goes into the background, and these people will not be held accountable to the clear teachings of the Word of God, but God told them to do this or to say that or whatever. That's a competing authority, and God's Word will not be competed with. Yeah, and that's the reason why we're seeing the the church drift in the directions that it's drifting in. Because you you basically people are setting up alongside of the Bible a competing authority structure. And that's these direct revelations that God directly speaking to these people. He's not. But that's what's happening. They were down the tubes. There isn't one of them that doesn't qualify in this description. Now if it's true in the seminaries... And it's true in the denominations, and it's true in the church universal, historically, it's true today. So we must, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, test all things and hold fast to what is good. The only way you know what's good is if the Word of God tells you. It isn't what your emotions tell you. It's not what you feel. It's not because you have a burning in your bosom, the way the Mormon missionary tells you. It's not because it sounds good or because you're more comfortable with it or because it meets your needs or because it works. Or because it resonates with your soul. It's because it's true. It's because God said it. That's what makes it viable. <sighs> yep, yep, yep. Amen and amen. Jay, thank you for sharing that on my Facebook wall so that I can share it with the listeners here at Fighting for the Faith. Okay, we're running a little late today. Just, you know, I'm going to, you know me, I'm on Rosebro time, and that's different than anybody else's time anyway. 
Uh, <clears throat> um, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. Uh, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Some Bible teaching coming up. Get, uh, get your Bible out. Genesis, what, chapter 37, 38, somewhere in there. Yeah, get ready. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing the Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, the Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of the Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8645. 
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, if you think the people who are pointing out the false doctrine are the ones who are divisive, then you've got another thing coming. It's the one teaching the false doctrine. Those are the guys who are dividing the body of Christ and leading people astray. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website fightingforthefaith.com when you get there you'll see two friendly friendly two tiny little friendly yellow buttons one says donate the other says join our crew and when you join our crew what you're doing is you're signing up to automatically contribute six dollars 95 cents every month it automatically happens to the ongoing work and mission of fighting for the faith and pirate christian radio and of course um, the idea here is, is that the more people who join our crew, it levels out our giving so that we can uh, meet our budgeted expenses every month. Mucho importante and uh, very important. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Need to remind you all, uh, a, a month from Tomorrow, Yeah, that's right. On October 23rd, I will be debating uh, Doug Paget of the uh, Emergent Church on the topic of hell. Now, uh, th- it's a two-day conference that's uh, being held at, uh, at uh, what is the name, uh, Newburgh Christian Church in Newburgh, Oregon. And uh, the name of it is the Believer's Reason Conference and Debate. And so it's a two-day conference, uh, Friday, October 22nd, and Saturday, October 23rd. I will be in attendance for both days. And uh, and if you would like to come out and say, hey, I'd love to meet you. And uh, not only that, if you'd like to stick around for my debate against Doug, pa- uh, Doug Padgett, um, I would uh, really love to uh, have you be there. The debate itself will take three hours, by the way. It's a three-hour-long debate. A three-hour debate. Anyway, um, so uh, if you want more information about the Believer's Reason Conference and Debates uh, and uh, the debate where I will be debating Doug Padgett on the topic of hell, boy, i got to tell you, this has been fascinating researching all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> Yeah, I'm going into the debate prepared. And uh, it's going to be all kinds of fun. Anyway, uh, if you would like to um, 
get more information, visit fightingforthefaith.com. On the left-hand side of the uh, Fighting for the Faith website, there is a little button that says Believers, Reasons, Conference, and Debate. Click on that. It'll take you to the uh, website for Newburgh Christian Church in Newburgh, Oregon, and you can get more information uh, and uh, register to attend. And uh, and uh, yeah, you can come out and you can take photographs uh, with me if you want to. And uh, I'll suck it in so that you, so I can make the claim that you know, show you photographically that I truly am an underweight fat guy. Anyway, okay, moving along here. This <laughs> I'm going to go so long; it's not even funny today. Thankfully, the sermon today that I'm reviewing isn't that long. But uh, yeah, I, you know me when I interject, things get well. <sighs> Fun thing about uh, you know being the guy who runs Pirate Christian Radio is that uh, my program goes until I'm finished. So anyway, this next segment is called uh, Taking Joseph Away from the Purpose-Driven Dreamers. Taking Joseph Away from the Purpose-Driven Dreamers. Yeah, those who bought into this whole purpose-driven, you know, God has a dream for your life thing that's going on nowadays. And, yeah, well, yesterday's sermon, we reviewed the dream killers. Yeah, that's right, the dream aciders. Anyway, um, I, I thought what we you know, what we do is let's spend a little bit of time in the story of Joseph. Believe me when I tell you, the story itself is far more interesting than those who twist it and misapply it. And as, as I read the story, it'll become patently clear to you as I read this, that this idea that just because Joseph had a dream doesn't mean that God has the same dream for you. It just it doesn't work that way. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 37. Believe me when I tell you this is going to take a few minutes, but it's going to be well worth it because this is the way you inoculate yourself and others against those who would twist the story and make it about somehow, okay, Joseph had a dream, therefore that means God has a dream for your life too. It doesn't say that. It doesn't, it doesn't say that at all. Not only that, he, let me kind of bring you up to speed here, okay? We're in the book of Genesis, and you know there's some major things that have occurred. The, number one, God created the heavens and the earth. Kind of important. And he created the fishies, and he created the stars, and the moon, and the sun, and the plants, and the animals. And the pinnacle of his creation was man, okay? He created man, male and female, Okay. In the image of God, he created them, and they were deceived by Satan and uh, fell into sin. And as, and, as uh, on the day that they, were, they fell into sin, they truly, were, they truly died. They died spiritually. And uh, they continued to live on physically, but God provided for them and gave them a promise, a promise of a Savior who would crush the head of the serpent and who would, in the process, have his heel bruised by the serpent. So, you know, there's this promise. And, and things kind of go bad. From, you know, it's not, it's not a great story. I mean, you know, the, there, there are two firstborn sons. Uh, one of them, uh, the oldest, murders the youngest after, yeah, it's just uh, awful stuff. Then you have the flood. And then coming out of the flood, we, ha- we pick up the story of the scarlet thread of the bloodline of the Messiah. Because that's what we're. This, this the Bible's really the story of God's intervention, God's acting on our behalf for our salvation, and He does this by choosing for Himself a people, a nation, and and uh, and then protecting that nation and bringing basically bringing the Messiah into existence through that the, the, that people. And so you have the Abraham, you have Abraham, then you have Isaac, and then you have Jacob and Esau, and Jacob and his twelve sons. You've heard of the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, that's because Jacob had twelve 
sons. And one of them was a gentleman by the name of Joseph. And Joseph was born to Jacob's, well, favorite wife. He had four. And um, he had two sons by his favorite wife. And um, that was uh, Joseph and Benjamin. Okay. But, um, you know, the things don't really go so well. I mean, this, uh, anyway, that's kind of the, so what's, what we're doing is we're following God's acting in history to save us. That's what's going on here. And so we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37. Now, this is important. Jesus comes through the bloodline not of Joseph. He's Je- Jesus is not a descendant of Joseph. Jesus is a descendant of Judah. We'll talk about Judah here in a minute. So if you have your Bibles, open up. We're going to spend a lot of time here, and then we'll get into our sermon review. So make yourself comfortable. It's, it's going to take some time. But this is a fascinating story, and it's far more interesting when you, when you read it in light of God's saving actions for us than reading it as, well, a story about, um, you know, well, Joseph had a dream, therefore God wants you to have a dream too. It's ridiculous. Anyway, here's because there's other people who dream in this story, by the way. Other people have dreams. (laughs) Yeah, hang on a second here. Here we go. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, now, he was a boy uh, with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Okay? Yes, this kind of shows you, well, well, this is one of the effects of sin, okay? When we read the story of the patriarchs, we're not reading great moral examples for the most part. What we're, a lot of times what we're reading is sinners saved by the grace of God, and Jacob was you know, no less a sinner than you and I are. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Now hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, this is important to the question. Who gave Joseph this particular dream? God did. Okay? Now, the text doesn't tell us why God gave him this dream. Okay? But its interpretation was readily apparent to all. Okay? Not much interpretation, interpretive skills were necessary. Even his brothers got it. And <laughs> so, I mean, you, you kind of get what's going on here. Okay? Now, God is the one who gave him this dream. This dream is going to be critical, critical in the story because God has called Joseph to do something. And what God has called Joseph to do is not only important, but it's going to cost him dearly. It's going to cost him dearly. Okay. So then Joseph dreamed another dream and and told it to his brothers and said, now behold, I, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun The moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. 
But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now, that's the setup. That's the setup what's going on here. Yeah, there's other people who have dreams. God, yeah, there's other people who have dreams. Okay, but God at this point has called out Joseph to a particular task that has to do with protecting, protecting and saving Israel and his sons, his brothers. Why? Because in protecting and saving them, he's protecting and saving the scarlet thread of the seed who was promised to Adam and Eve who would crush the head of the serpent and whose heel would be bruised in the process. That's what's really going on here. Okay. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Well, here I am. And he said to him, Now, now go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, And he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? Well, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, Well, they've gone away, for I heard them say, Let's go, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now they saw him from afar, must be because of his big colorful coat. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then he will. Uh, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. That was Reuben's plan. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. Ishmael, this is the other son of uh, of Abraham, coming from Gilead, and their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and, and, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood 
And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. He identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn into pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. And his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in, sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, keep this in mind. Okay, God at this point knows what's going on. And God has appeared and spoken to Jacob before and changed his name to Israel. But God is completely silent at this point. God is not speaking to Jacob to reveal what's going on. And at this point, Jacob believes that his son has been eaten by a wild animal. And he mourned greatly, shed many tears, had sleepless nights, and his heart ached at the thought that his son had been eaten by a wild animal. Now, I'm going to skip chapter 38. Now, I recommend you read chapter 38. The reason why is because you want to know what's going on with the line of Judah. Well, this kind of tells you where Judah is going. We find out that Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, who was acting as a prostitute, and she conceives as a result of it. And the line of Judah continues. And this is the line through which Jesus comes through, the Messiah. It's put in here for a good reason, but I'll let you read it on your own. Fascinating story, too, by the way. Chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his, of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now pause here for a second. God's grand scheme for Joseph was for him to become a slave? Right. And what did Joseph do? Here, Joseph, he keeps his faith in the Lord. His faith doesn't waver. Despite what has happened to him, how he lost his freedom and is now a slave. And what does Joseph do? By faith, he obeys his master, and he serves Potiphar as if he's serving the very Lord himself, and God blesses him. Here we have Joseph, this great man of faith. He doesn't waver in his faith toward the Lord, despite the fact that he's lost his freedom He's not with his family, he's in a foreign country, and he's a slave. The words of the Apostle Paul come to mind when he says, Slaves, obey your masters as you would the Lord. Yeah. Mm. Joseph, a man of faith here. 
he's demonstrating in his life the fruits of the Holy Spirit that come about as a result of faith. He, he's got a faith, a real faith that's working here. Well, let's continue. Let's see here. Uh, okay, he became successful. He was in, okay, and he was in the house of an Egyptian master. Yeah. Yep, and uh, his master saw the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in a charge of all that he had. And from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a, after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge, and he is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything for me except for yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Yeah, again, what does this show? This, I mean, despite all the terrible circumstances that his dream has brought to him, <clears throat> he maintains his faith and trust and fear and love and trust in God, even so much to the point that he, he would dare not sin against God in that way. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. And he came into me and to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I had lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So then she uh, laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant that you, whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. She's lying like a rug. <clears throat> and as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Yeah, that's a fine reward for doing the right thing, right? The Lord blessed Joseph, so much so that Joseph not only went from being a slave, he's now lost all of his freedom and he's a prisoner. And that's exactly, exactly where Joseph needs to be in order for his family to be saved. 
But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Oh, good stuff. What a great God Joseph has. Definitely, definitely he has well, uh, well-placed well faith in the one true God. We continue. Now, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night, they both dreamed. Oh, no, it's a purpose-driven dream. I, I wonder what the purpose of the baker is. Because the truly, this dream comes to the baker, and he lives out his purpose in the plan of God. He has a he has a walk on role in the salvation of Israel. Let's find out what this dream's all about. So one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each had his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. And he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? Strange question to be coming from a man who's lost his freedom completely. He was sold into slavery and is now in prison unjustly. But he's asking them, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, well, we we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, well, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me. Even in his, even the fact that he's a prisoner unjustly, he still trusts God. He still has faith in God and still speaks well of God. Do not interpretations belong to God? This reminds me of Paul, who in prison says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Wow, the fruits of his faith, the fruits of the Spirit are there. He has faith in the true God. So we continue. Verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Well, in in my dream there was a vine before me, and and on the vine there were three branches, and as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes, and Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, Well, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so to get me out of his, out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Now when the chief baker saw 
that the uh, interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, well, I also had a dream, and, and there were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered and said, well, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Now, Got to pause right there. <clears throat> so the baker has a dream. The dream is from God, and the baker is dreams. Well, it gets recorded in the Bible even. So the baker had a dream from God, and he lived out his purposes for the glory of God. Was his dream to change the world? No, his, well, the purpose that God had raised him up was to... <sighs> Well, he lost his head. So apparently, uh, if you're going to make it, if you're going to turn this into a doctrine that, you know, Joseph had a dream, well, keep in mind, the baker had a dream too. And it was from God. God revealed to him what was going to happen. But you know what? It doesn't say this in Scripture. So this is something you can completely just do with what you want. You can You can ignore it too. But you know, Hard for me to believe that Joseph, who has this amazing faith in his amazing God. Yeah, Joseph's a man of faith, and he knows the one true God. Hard for me to believe that somebody who is there serving the cupbearer and the baker in prison, he was there to serve them, that he wouldn't also serve the baker Serve him by telling him of the one true God and calling him to repentance and faith in him as he gets ready to go to his maker. Yeah, doesn't say it, but you know what? No better place for that baker to be than in a place where he's being served by Joseph, this great man of faith as he approaches the end of his life. I bet you anything. Bet you anything. Joseph told him about Yahweh. Told him about the Lord. Told him. Yeah, just... It doesn't say that. And, and you know, I just... I just have to believe that this man who has this great faith couldn't help but want to comfort this man in his last hours on the earth by pointing him to... The one true God. We continue. Now on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hung the uh, chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. We continue, chapter 41. Now, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And then Pharaoh awoke. 
And he fell asleep, and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing as one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, You know, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, and when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office, and while well, the baker, he was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Listen to, listen to Joseph's answer. Joseph answered Pharaoh, well, it is not in me. God, though, will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. <laughs> I, I can't interpret dreams, but God can. Let's hear what, tell me your dream and God will answer you. So here Pharaoh is hearing directly from God through his young prophet, Joseph. So then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And Well, and then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And, and I told it to my the magicians, but there was no one who can explain it to me. So then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one, and God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. 
Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Now this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all of my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all of the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphanath Paneah, and gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until it ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priestess of On, bore them to him, Joseph called the first one, firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all of my hardship and all of my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe all over the earth. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. This is Israel speaking. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, who is Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. 
So, I mean, he's carrying the scar here. He's he's afraid he's going to lose Benjamin, who is the only other son of uh, his favorite wife. So the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, Joseph was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Exactly how God said it would happen. Remember the original dream. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, well, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them Why? Because one of them had just come true. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And and they said, No, 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 my lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. No grain for you. (laughs) I just added that. So they said, we, we, your servants, were, we are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and, and one of us, well, he, he's no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified that you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning now for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them. That's Joseph turned away from them, and he wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Now this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack, and he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. There it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them. 
And they turned and trembled to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land, he spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We were honest men, and we have never been spies, and we are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, everything, every man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All of this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are about to make, you would bring my gray hairs down with sorrow to Sheol. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will not send our brother with us, we will go down and buy buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and send him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we, have, we would now have returned twice. So then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, some gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Also, take your brother, arise, and go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man that he may send you back Send back your bro- your other brother, Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. So then the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin, and arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. 
Now when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. They said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our bag and our sacks the first time that we are brought in. So he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down uh, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them, and when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkey fodder, they prepared the present uh, for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? That's got to be a tough pretense to put on there. He wants to know about dad. They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his, and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm and his, for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and then... By themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for it was an abomination to the Egyptians. And they set and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. By the way, what that means is, is that Joseph was able to have all of the men sit in order from the oldest to the youngest. He knew who was the oldest and who was the youngest. So they were all amazed by what happened here. Now portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and they were merry with him. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money, for the grain, and he did as Joseph told him. Now, as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent on, uh, sent away with their donkeys, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, "Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from uh, from this that my lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this." So when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, 
Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servant. He said, Well, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent." So then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and each searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you... Go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again and buy us a little food, we said we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes, uh, if, if our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, the boy, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up by the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all of my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his father." For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would that would find my father. Notice it's Judah who wants to be the substitute. Interesting. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Make everyone go out from me. 
no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all of his house and ruler over all of the land of Egypt. Stop there for a second and think about this. This is the shadow. The reality is Christ. This is the, this is the glimpse at the work of Christ, whom we crucified, whom we destroyed. And yet, God sent Christ in what we meant for evil. God has used to preserve life, our lives. This is the shadow. And even the shadow doesn't work exactly perfectly. It's not a one-to-one correlation, but it points us straight to Jesus. And it shows us how God works. The things that we intended for evil, God has used for good to save life and to preserve a remnant for himself. It shows us a picture of Christ. It points us to Jesus. To focus on the story of Joseph and get hung up on the fact that he had a dream when he was a young kid is to miss the whole point of the story. It was our sin who put Christ on the cross. It was our sin, your sin and mine, that put him on that tree. And what we intended for evil, God has used for good to save us. For through Christ's cross, that horrible, horrible injustice, the one man, the one man who truly was sinless, the one man who has ever lived who truly was righteous, who truly was good, who truly was merciful and kind and without sin, we murdered him. 
we, you and I, murdered God. And what we intended for evil, God has used to bless us and to save us. Joseph's story is a picture of that. They, in their murderous thoughts, sold him into slavery, and he was as good as dead. He lost all of his freedom. He went from slave to prisoner. And that was exactly where God wanted him to be. Because through that horrible, evil thing that was done to him, all of them, God used that to save, to save the world and to save the line of Christ and preserve for himself salvation, you know, for, you know, to save many. And see, listen to this. Verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph. This is a resurrection and a very this is a picture of the resurrection too. Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother, uh, my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. See, this is, again, I... I uh... I hear echoes of the New Testament here. This is a shadow of what was fulfilled in Christ. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's all right in here. So then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and he wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them, and after that his brothers talked with him. It's an amazing story. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes." To his father he sent as as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, 
and provision for his father on the journey. And then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is the ruler over all of the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision of the night, and he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had set to carry him. And they also took their livestock and their goods with which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and they came to Egypt. Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. I'll skip ahead to verse 26 because the next few verses have uh, a genealogy of sorts, kind of a listing of everybody. And the wonderful thing about that is, is that there's no way, there's no way this is allegorical. There's no way that this is mythological, not with a list of names like that. that this is all history. We continue, verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, and he fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck for a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to all of his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds, and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Interesting. 
So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with all their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and they are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land, and let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now, that's not the whole story. There's more to this. And if you want to read on, then continue reading on. Now, it's obvious I'm not going to get to the sermon review today. But I think it's important to take Joseph away from the purpose-driven dreamers. Because nowhere in the scriptures does it teach that God has a, quote, dream for your life, like he revealed a dream like he did for Joseph or the cupbearer or for the baker of Pharaoh or for Pharaoh himself. We find in the story an exceptional story in human history, not one that's normative, but one that really stands out as special, as different, unlike unlike the stories of most of humanity. And all of it was so that God would achieve his purpose. But his purpose wasn't to give Joseph a great life. Not necessarily, because he suffered greatly. He lost everything. But the purpose that God had in mind was to preserve for himself a people. And from the descendants of Israel... We follow that scarlet thread from the story of Joseph through the story of Moses and the Exodus through the story of the taking of the land of Canaan through the story of the judges through 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings through the Babylonian captivity and through the restoration ultimately we come again to the land of Canaan on the banks of the Jordan River to hear the voice of the final prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, 
Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. We come to the one who was ultimately preserved, Jesus Christ, the one who we crucified, the one who, by whom we are saved, the one who really was our substitute. It was awful nice of Judah to offer to be substituted for Benjamin to set him free. But the line of the tribe of Judah was the one who really did substitute. He was the one who suffered shame and was cursed. Because the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He was cursed in our place. He was cursed in our place in order to set us free. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. The story of Joseph is a chapter a little vignette in the story of the scarlet thread of Scripture, the story that takes us to the cross, that takes us to Golgotha, that takes us to the one, Jesus. To take Joseph's story and the fact that God revealed to him ahead of time what would happen is to miss the whole point. To somehow make it, well, see, Joseph had a dream, therefore you can have, God has a dream for your life. That's, that's, a, that's not even a logical conclusion of the text. But in, in a very real way, God does have a plan for your life. But it's an eternal plan. Right now, here, this side of Christ's return, you may suffer persecution. You may suffer loss. The one thing is for sure, you will suffer. Just like Israel pointed out that it, of the 130 years that he's lived, they are painful and evil days. But the story doesn't end there. For Jesus will return for us to bring us not into the land of Egypt but to bring us into his eternal kingdom he will return for us he's coming back to, 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 to free us from this famine that we're currently in from the shadow lands that we currently live in from this world that is now subject to sin, death and the devil where we toil to pay, to put food on the table, where pain and sorrow and tears and suffering really are the norm, into a kingdom where he will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will eat at our Father's table in his eternal kingdom forever. Joseph's story is a picture of all of that. It's a shadow it's a shadow, 
but the reality is in Christ. And it points us to the reality that isn't even been revealed yet, that is coming. Those who twist the scripture and mangle this text, they take our eyes off of Christ. And yet Christ is in all of the pages of the story I just read for you. He's the heart and substance of this entire story. To miss Jesus in this telling of Joseph is to miss the whole point. Is your pastor pointing you to Christ when he opens up the text? Does he show you what a great Savior you have? Or does he give you bizarre teachings about supposedly some subjective thing that you're supposed to be experiencing so that you can have some great purpose in your life? If he's not pointing you to Christ, he's not correctly handling God's word. And remember, twisting the Bible is not a victimless crime. It has eternal consequences. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address you'd like to email me is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins and mine. Amen. Amen.